welcome to yet another episode of When a Guy Has a Really Fucked Gender. As always, I'm your host, Jolene, and I have with me this week um, a very old internet friend. Um, I feel like we go back like five or six years at this point now. Um, Ariel, Ariel, would you like to say hello? Hey! Um, how are you doing today? Well, we've already talked about how you're doing today. Yeah, I've already talked about that. <laughs> I am doing good. We did do some pre-production this time. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that you're doing good. I'm doing pretty good, too. Uh, better now. Um, how would you describe your gender? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, I should have thought about this a little bit more ahead of time. Um, I think I think part of what's like useful to me is, is in a sense, not thinking about things too much ahead of time. I feel like I'm in a position where there's a lot of flux going on and I'm kind of having an interesting relation to trying to totalize things in any given moment. I think there's kind of like a really standard like set of maybe like two or three ways to describe things. You know, one is maybe the really typical at this point. I'm a fag, but I'm a dyke, but I'm a fag, but I'm a dyke, right? There's that, there's that whole fag dyke dialectic going on and i think both i think that is complicated by uh, my experience of disability and by being jewish and latina because i think both of those things really kind of modify how those you know how that dynamic lands yeah hell yeah we'll get sort of into the the wrinkles of those i guess as we kind of go i know that those are sort of like things that in conversations we've had before um you said really kind of shaped your your young life and your sort of i guess the way you came up um what uh yeah i guess, I guess tell me a little bit about sort of like how those things shaped your life as a child right yeah um as a kid i was kind of in this really weird position where my mom's family and kind of her whole friend circle are Latina. My dad is Anglo from the States. And um, he didn't really have a lot of like friends or a lot of social contacts. So really like the whole kind of social world I was in was this like really particular, largely white, Jewish, Latina milieu, right? And that was kind of where I existed in like family life around like family friends. And at the very same time I was in schools where I was like one of two Jewish people in my grade. And there were basically no Latina people. I like went to a, a private elementary school that was like pretty small. So I, it was really weird kind of trend like moving and like transitioning on like a really daily basis between these two really social environments where a ton of the way things were handled and talked about were just different. Um, and I remember just like having a lot of trouble with the fact that like the really waspy social norms of the school that I went to and the people I knew from there and the kind of associated activities I found through that group of people ended up being really different than 
what I was just used to at home and in general. It was a common point of reference for me. And some of it was, like, really basic in the sense that, like, you know, how do you stand around people? <laughs> There's a question of, like, proximity there. There's a question of, like, all right, like, how much is somebody gesturing? Volume. Like, very kind of common issues with just, like, the specificity of, like, physical embodiment. And, like, what's appropriate for a space. So that was, like, really complicated for me on some level. So there's kind of the direct experiential, you know, not even sort of thinking about it in this um, broader, like, what is gender kind of way. Just, like, I spent a lot of time just really fucking confused about how to exist in space and interact with people as a kid. And I think on top of that, there was a kind of confusion around gender because I really felt this radical discontinuity between what gender was supposed to look like in different spaces. Um, even within my own family, there's a pretty significant divide between a, kind of like a Hasidic branch of my mother's family and a more secular branch of my mother's family. And the idea of gender roles there was, was complicated because I think Orthodox Judaism um, brings with it a really specific set of gender roles. And those aren't the sort of gender roles and kinds of performance and behavior you're seeing in like general Latina culture, which like a lot of my other family held to. There's this thing that happens in weddings in my family um, because it's split this way, where during the wedding, you know, the, whatever happened, like the party at the wedding, not the wedding itself. Uh, during the party at the wedding, there's the dance floor, right? And the dance floor fundamentally has three parts. So running through the middle of the front part of the dance floor, by wherever like the band or the DJ is, there's a mechitza, there's a wall. And that wall exists to separate the men and the women. Like very traditional uh, Orthodox Jewish thing. People, men and women aren't supposed to dance together, right? Unless they're married, you know, um, but it's not happening in a public function. No way. But immediately, like behind where the mechitza ends, there's like an open bit of dance floor. And that's where, like, everyone that's not that religious will dance together, regardless of gender, you know, in, like, one space. So it's a kind of a really weird thing to have, like, put up against each other. And, you know, looking at that configuration, like, from the outside, if you're, like, off the dance floor, you can very clearly see the difference in, like, how people are dressed, how people hold themselves, how they move, how they talk. And, like, very clearly, there's, there, one of these things is not like the other but everyone's existing in the same space. So that was confusing for me from a really early age, you know, let alone with, you know, all of that functioning really differently in sort of like white Anglo versions of masculinity and femininity. Did you ever express that kind of confusion? I think like a lot of asking happened um, dancing became a really complicated thing for me as a kid. Um, I, like, stopped dancing for a very long time, because I remember I got really bullied at some point by someone who's like, you dance way too much like a girl. And that wasn't even just, like, a my own gendered expression kind of thing. It's like, oh, if I'm dancing like a girl, where do I dance? What kind of dancing can I do? Like, what sort of dance is this? What kind of dance was it? 
you know, I don't really know. I wasn't like taking dance classes as a kid, right? So I was just like dancing the way that kids dance. Although at the same time, you know, I I did have like pretty gendered models for dance because the kind of music that I listened to a lot at home was there's like a lot of salsa music and that's the kind of dance that has like very gendered roles attached to it. Um, the music I'd listened to wasn't that uh, at all, you know. Um, I was just like really into like boy bands <laughs> as a kid, right? And, you know, things were like dancing is not as front and center. So like, you know, blues music because of what my dad listened to. Um, so that was weird. And there was also just a component of like, oh shit, like, I am like fucking Anglo kid. You know, like, I, my whole family basically grew up speaking Spanish. I didn't. Not the way that kind of, like, my cousins did. Um, so there's also, like, this weird, like, cultural question, which is, like, you know, why I'm, I'm like, the fucking gringo in the family. You know, I am, I am, <laughs> I am the Anglo kid. Uh, but not quite, like, Anglo enough to feel comfortable around kind of all the other Anglo kids, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's it's a weird position to be in. I think it's I think it's a, a common thing for a lot of Latina people. Um, you know, I think being a white Latina, there are ways in which like that can hit even weirder in the sense that like you know there in most ways aside from, like, some cultural discomfort, you know, um, my Latini dad is not, was not, like, a factor, <laughs> you know, um, in most interactions I was having with people, especially that, like, never met my family. Because I'm just, like, another white girl. Or at that point, you know, um, was not identifying that way, but. Right. What was the sort of, like... Right, you're talking about there's lots of, like, sort of, like, varied, like, gender norms in all these spaces. How... Hmm. I'm trying to think how to ask this. I guess I'm curious about whether there was a sort of, like, to your mind, or maybe it was even expressed, I don't know, like a sort of right there's obviously a lot of discontiguity in the particular content but i guess the sort of like outside of the content the sort of like um the form let's say uh <laughs> we'll do some hylomorphism um the form was was there sort of an idea of there being like um you know of a, a kind of contiguous form between them in the sense that like for example these are maybe all you know there's sort of different specifics there's different sorts of uh things going on but there's these are all sort of like the these all shake out into like one of two ways that people are expected to like normally develop um yeah i think i think there's a strong sense of that you know, I think there's a very strong sense of, you know, there being a gender binary and there being very delimited lines. And, 
there are certain things that are appropriate and not appropriate. You know, to the point where it's like, you know, I have a large percentage of my family where it's like, the idea of women wearing pants is not really imaginable as a thing that, like, happens in their lives. Right? Like, that's like, that's like a strong, that's a strong version of, you know, like a really set bit of expectations. And that wasn't shared among everyone, right? Like, I grew up and, like, my mom wears pants, like, you know, like, the individual approach of, like, my, you know, the house I had growing up was, like, my mom. And it's kind of how synagogues work there. You know, it's that, like, uh, people, the synagogue tends to be really observant, and then you kind of choose how observant you are at home. You know, I did not grow up in a kosher home. Um, it was kosher. Everything was kosher when family came, which was a huge thing. Um, or we ended up using, you know, like, paper plates and stuff. It all kind of depended a little bit, right? Um, but I didn't grow up with that kind of strictness on one hand, but I, I had that as a model. And, you know, I, I think I lived in kind of a world of Latina culture where, you know, a, a lot of things that were gender transgressive weren't necessarily visible. I remember I was having a conversation with my mother one of the last times I was back uh, visiting her in California. And, you know, at some point she like turned to me in the car and was like, um, Ariel, we, I don't understand this whole trans thing. We don't have trans people in Venezuela, which is like a fucking ludicrous thing to say. Like, of course they have trans people in Venezuela. And it's been like a highly visible cultural group for like a very long time, like in some respects. But that's just not something that was, like, visible in the media in my world. And I didn't, really, like, know a lot of tomboys growing up. You know, everyone I knew was just kind of like, you have a gender role and you do it. And I didn't really know where I fit in that, but I really wanted to do it right. Uh, and I really wanted to choose a thing and have the structure in a way that'd be really helpful. Okay. And well, I I guess so uh, maybe an adjunct. I, I want to ask you a little bit about um what it was like to actually sort of choose that or or did you choose that or all that sort of stuff. But I also wanted to ask you kind of you, you know, are talking about the sort of discontiguity of content but the sort of like contiguity a form between the sorts of uh, various environments that you're growing up in. Um, were there any kind of glimmers of like things that broke the form? Were there any kinds of like glimmers of like transness, whether that be like, um, I don't know, like, like, was that just like a thing that you like learned about at all? Were those like kinds of people around and just not talked about or were they like talked about but in like, enough of a derogatory way that it was like kind of not really a part of the sort of the concepts going on or or what was what was sort of what was going my on fa my father talked about them sometimes i think it wasn't a common thing i didn't really hear about gay people either that much honestly um but like my father's a forensic psychologist um <laughs> so when trans people came up it would be in a very kind of disciplinary way Right. Okay. And it would kind of be around like, all right, like trans people as objects of violence. Right. Um, trans people who 
are engaging in sex work, um, trans people. So it was not even like a, cl- a clinical version of like, what do trans people experience? It was like, like, what are things inflicted on trans people from like the perspective of what it says about the person inflicting those things on trans people? So it was literally an imaginable position for me to inhabit in some sense, right? Right. So I, I'm just making a try. It's like forensic psychology, as in like as forensic psychologist. Was he like involved with like law enforcement or like yeah, yeah, worker? Like, okay. Like like law enforcement. So he does a bunch of things. Um, he does threat assessment. You threaten somebody in in your workplace, they'll call him him in to see if you'll actually act on it. He did a, bunch, a lot of reality TV shows. You know, every reality TV show they interview candidates. Um, before they go on the show to make sure they're like stable enough to go on the show because it's like an insurance liability thing um and also sorry. things like someone sorry i'm imagining right that has to be balanced against the um desire to get a good reality tv show out of them right well there's this really interesting phenomenon that happens because like as a kid sometimes i would like my dad would be working on set and he'd like pick me up from school and like take me to the set i'd like do homework on set for a little while this happened a number of times and because and he loved he loved working on set because he could double bill right he could like do his reading and bill for his reading hours and he could physically be on set and they wouldn't use him for anything he'd just be in a room by himself or like, you know, sitting at a table by himself and doing his reading. But they needed to have him on set for liability reasons sometimes, right? So he, he, he could also bill for that. So I kind of liked that kind of gig. So I spent some time on reality TV sets. And there's this interesting thing that happens that like a lot of reality TV is waiting around for something to happen, right? And then when something happens, the whole production, you know, goes into a flurry because they want to capture it. And they want to kind of escalate things to the point where it's really interesting. So I'd sit there kind of for like hours and, you know, low key, just like not interesting things are going on. This is like for like, for example, one of those like wife swapping shows. <laughs> I don't think they call them that. But you know what I mean, right? No, there, there's literally one called Wife Swap. I've only watched one episode of it, but it was amazing. Oh my God. It was. <laughs> well, like one, it was... one of the shows. I... Okay. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the the one that I watched, I watched one single episode because a friend was like, you have to see this. And it was like this one family where they were all goths and they would like, they like said that like the one daughter could talk to ghosts and they would like go hang out in the cemetery and like have picnics. And the son was like not allowed to play football, even though he really wanted to. <laughs> um. And they swapped with this, like, family where the mother, like, called her sons losers for not playing hockey hard enough and just completely ignored her daughter. Um, so it was a really fun episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, shit, that shit's wild. Yeah, extremely. <laughs> but, you know, like, so much thought goes into, like, escalating interactions and stuff on those shows. And I also, I'm also sure this, like, has changed. You know, since, like, because it's been, like, well over a decade since I was ever on any of those sets. So, you know, who knows what changed. But kind of, like, picture me. It's like a wife swap show. I'm in, like, Carmel Valley, California, like, sitting outside this track home. You know, granite, you know, like, like marble countertops, right? Granite, whatever. Um, 
and I'm like sitting in like a, a trailer outside of this this house, and like I'm like doing my homework, and like my dad's doing doing his reading, right? And you know, they're like a bunch of kind of crew sitting around eating food, you know, like drinking coffee, whatever, doing doing whatever they're, whatever they're doing. And you know, someone bursts in and like, oh, there's a fight happening, right? And the person that's like producing, directing, I don't know the rules for this, the whole thing, like runs up to my dad and is like, hey, like, can you be here as we're filming this? Uh, and like, do you think it's okay for us to visibly position a bunch of cameramen outside so like everyone can see that like people are watching this conflict? Is this the kind of conflict where it's good to give an audience to like escalate the situation? Or do you think we should like hang back? Like that was kind of his job on set, right? Okay, interesting. So there, there were the two parts of that, and the final thing he did was like, you know, uh, let's say, let's say, like you murder someone, and you know, you, you plead insanity, right? He'd probably work with a psychiatrist to like assess competency. Or even a head injury, right? Right. And you know, you claim it's affected you, right? You'll have a neurologist. Um, he works like he works with neurologists a lot too. Assess the physical damage, but he'll actually give the things that are like measures of like cognitive impairment. Okay, so it's interesting. I mean, I guess right. It makes sense that in this role, he it sounds like as you're saying, he primarily encountered trans people as um, victims of crimes. Right? Is yeah, that, is yeah, that yeah. Or like you know, in the kind of even if he wasn't encountering them directly, it's like. What is he listening to and watching where they're coming up? Right. I guess maybe a little bit. Well, I don't. Reality TV. Well, reality TV that even wasn't a factor, right? But right. You know, he'd, yeah. go, he'd go to you know like disciplinary meeting, like like you know like conferences in his discipline and da 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 da, da where like stuff would come up. Um, right. Or you know like you know he had buddies that were cops, right? lawyers who talk about things, right? There's a very particular, like, point of view that sedimented, I think, among a class of professionals that encounter trans people in a really right. kind of narrow, fucked up way. So I think I might have got some of that. There wasn't a ton of it. I think some of that might have kind of entered my life. Um, I can't imagine yeah, osmosis. Particularly, a particularly um, encouraging way to first encounter the idea of transition. Yeah, not really. Not really. You know, I don't think it really wasn't like a heavy, like overbearing presence either. It's not a thing I really like. Okay. Well, I, on some level, I didn't know the transition was a thing that was possible, especially for someone like me until like, I don't know, college, after college. It just like wasn't on my radar. Yeah. Just Did the kind of community I lived in. Yeah. I'm from suburban San Diego County, right? Okay. I'm, like, terrible with California geography, but, like, San Diego is, like, sort of weirdly conservative, if I understand correctly, right? Yeah, San Diego's pretty conservative. Okay, compared to, like, the rest of California. Yeah, and, you know, I, one of, so one of the weird things that happened in California, and I don't remember the name of the bill that did this, I feel like a bad Californian, I've forgotten since moving here, but basically, the way that educated... Or... No, not Prop 8. Okay. I have feelings about Prop 8. This is like much older, much older legislation where okay. the funding of school districts 
was was tied to like local taxes oh, in that's that just, district. That's just true everywhere. Okay, and they also had like they also had like a cap on property taxes for like schools for like for like homes that were um, sold after a certain year. So you end up in these like really weird situations where like. I don't know what I'm saying. Like, like strike this part. Um, I guess what I'm trying to be at is, what I'm trying to say here is, San Diego is a really segregated area, especially, like, in suburbia, and there's just not so much, like, visibility or contact with, you know, things kind of outside the bubble sometimes. And I just didn't have a lot of that in some respects. In others, I had more than, you know, I, 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 one would have thought possible. You know, um, my, my, my father became a raw vegan, and I was around a lot of kind of weird new agey people um, that one might not have expected and the kind of connections they had. Um, okay, yeah. And like that, that opened things up. And like, you know, part of what led to my dad becoming a raw vegan is that he went to UC Santa Cruz like in the 70s. So he actually had like a number of friends who are queer and several friends who were like trans people that he like maintained contact with. He was actually like pretty close to and he liked a lot. They just never came up. They just were never really talked about because like but like when by the time I was a kid, he just like really didn't have a lot of connections with his friends in his life before. Okay. So I got this like really weird, in some sense, like distorted view of my father and how he view things because of this sort of like disciplinary frame that he had to like occupy as a forensic psychologist. When you know, like his kind of personal politics and ways of interacting are like not really inside that, but he was just occupying a workspace like all the time. So these other things didn't really become visible until I, like, talked to him about them when I was older. He's like, oh, yeah, like, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, like, people I never met. But I think this is part of the harm of the nuclear family, in a sense where it's like, I think the way I grew up ended up, you know, I didn't have so much of a social world outside of, like, my own family and the families my family was friends with. So, you know, there's not this broader, like, social environment where you have the possibility to meet people that, like, didn't end up doing the, like, respectable, you know, heterosexual expected thing. So, despite the fact that, like, there was a ton of contact in my dad's life, and he had friends with people that are like that, and... You know, he had friends that didn't fit into the, the mold that was expected. That just, there was no space for that to continue. Because the modes of existing and socializing were, like, families with other families. hmm Okay. And so the, and the, how much of this do you feel like was just, like, sort of a, you said you were in the suburbs, right? Is that just, like, a kind of consequence of suburbia and like the fact that being young in suburbia kind of sucks and is really hard to 
um, have friends and, and do stuff or? I think a lot of it is that. I think some of it is like a relation to um, like public space thing uh, in the sense that like you can have you can have suburbia and like live in a part of suburbia that like has a much bigger commitment to like doing things in public space. Mm-hmm. Like, like the neighborhood I lived in, like didn't ever do like little block parties or anything. Right. There was never kind of like this outdoor celebratory, whatever culture. Like I wasn't like super good friends with, with like the, like with our neighbors. Right. So I think there are versions of suburbia that are actually less bad about this. And I was kind of in a worse version of that in some regards. Um, so I, I think it's a lot of things. Um, I think part of it is just sort of like, you know, the religious spaces I was in. Because I like attended synagogue as a kid. I went to Sunday school. And, you know, I ended up largely attending uh, a conservative or Masorti synagogue. Where, like, you know, the, the rabbi did not have uh, great political opinions. He was like a big Bush supporter, I remember. We used to get in fights about this, uh, which is silly. Silly. Why am I arguing with a rabbi? I'm a child. But like, happened all the time. And he ended up retiring from being a rabbi to like run a national security consulting firm in Alabama. <laughs> and after some point, he just like started carrying a pistol on him, you know? Which is, like, really weird. Like, there aren't a lot of, like, I am defending America cowboy pistol-carrying rabbis running around. But, like, that's the rabbi that I had. And did a bar mitzvah with. That's... That's so crazy. Yeah. And I was in a weird position because, like... You know, my, my, my dad's only super close friend that we saw a lot was this... Um, like Baal Tshuva Chabadnik guy and his family. And I used to go and hang out with them like fairly often over the weekend. So I was in this like really weird position where it's like, I like how like more liberal and progressive politics than like this rabbi had, but also like my idea of what like proper Jewish practice is, if you're going to do the proper thing was in some ways like stricter than what the synagogue did. So I had like a weird amount of like political judginess and condescension that was totally inappropriate. As a child, <laughs> but he had no idea. What, he had no idea what to do with me. I understand that though. I would. I feel like kids are always getting really like. I don't know. It's easy to be a really intense to be like really intense about religion as a child because you're like this is. I don't know. It feels so important when you're young. Right? Like larger context for like how it actually functions in most people's lives. Um, I'm saying I'm kind of intense about religion now, you know. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know how much that's changed on on some level. Uh, weirdly, um, I'm saying like an adult now, hopefully. Um, but I also just think that's kind of part of who who I am on some level. I think like the things I think with and think through are really important to me, and religion is one of those things. Yeah. And I think my intensity was never like, oh, you're doing it wrong. Because I, I didn't really like know what right and wrong ways of doing things were on some level. Like for me, the judgment was also on the level of like, oh, like you're not thinking this through. Like you're not like 
really engaging seriously in doing your research here. Which is, like, even worse for a child to be, like, snippy about. But it was like, if you were, if you were like, a serious religious figure, you could give me an explanation here. That I'm not getting. Yeah. So what's, like, the kind of... When do you sort of start to, like, encounter, like, queer communities in your life? So I started to kind of queer communities in my life in, like, in a real way in high school, like, a little bit in middle school, I had, like, kind of a budding awareness of, a budding awareness of, uh, like, queer people, because I just, like, started doing some after-school activities and started spending most of my time away from my family and in kind of a much more mixed environment. It's, like, mortifying to admit. But uh, I, like, fenced pretty seriously in middle school and high school. It was, like, a thing I was doing, like, multiple days a week. And the places where trainings were held, uh, like, like, that happened in, like, a public space. Like, that happened, like, at UCSD. And there were also, like, college students there. And there were, like, community members there because it was done via the UCSD rec program. So all of a sudden, I just was spending a lot of time around a, a whole different set of people that I never would have spent time around before. And like the activity was fairly narrow, so like things didn't come up, but like I think there was some kind of awareness there. Um, and then in high school, like things really shifted because I went to this weird public arts high school. And it was just a whole bunch of different kinds of people I had never really been around in my life. It was a much different kind of more diverse environment. And that kind of felt like, like a crisis for me a little bit, you know? Um, it was the first time in my life that I like ended up feeling like kind of conservative. Cause I'm like, I don't understand these people or how to interact with them or like how to inter like, I, I don't want to get this culture. I don't know the rules. Um, you know, with, with, with how old I am, right? Like, my high school was, like, really full of, like, we had, like, a few metal kids running around. We had a lot of emo kids. We had a lot of people that were, like, that were, like, sneaking out to raves, right? There was a whole different musical and cultural canvas that I had never had any exposure to. Because the people I had knew previous weren't into that. And I was in such a weird kind of narrow cultural bubble. And that felt like, in some ways, it was, like, the majority of, of my school. And we even had someone who was trans and like out in the year, maybe after me, maybe my year, I'm not 100% sure, right? But like, this, this is someone who like worked as a model also, right? Like child trans, trans model. Um, this is kind of like pre-influencer days, but was like, you know, um, she... Had like a really supportive family, but like also were like all like gothic Lolita fashion and stuff. And I was like, I, I don't I don't even know how to approach this person. Like their world is not my world. And I don't know how to interact in this. I don't know the rules here. I don't have permission to enter or engage with these people. You know, like this is not my kind of person. Like I am this kind of person from this kind of background who can do this kind of thing. And that was decided by, you know. Like, what I was born into. Okay. 
Were there ever any more complicated feelings about that, or was it just kind of like you were just that 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 was it? Oh, so it was so complicated. I was really attracted. I mean, it's already com- it's already complicated, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'm saying the feeling like I couldn't do that was a response to being like, oh, I really want to like express myself in different ways, and I want to like dance differently, and I want to dress differently and dance. Let me restate that. I want to dress differently. And I want to express myself differently. I want to have different kinds of friends, right? Um, I want to do different kinds of things. And, you know, the, the, the like, oh, that's not for me was always like a, you know, uh, an inhibition response. Like, you want that, but you can't have it. And, you know, the, the proper thing to do is realize who you are and where you're from and what you can and can't do. Um, so, yeah, that was always complicated. And the other bit was like, you know, I, I had I had a girlfriend for most of most of high school, um, and actually, like she was really big in like me meeting queer people and like exploring gender things. Like meeting her was like really good for me. But like I also think it came with the fact that it's like, oh my god, I have all these fucking crushes on these fucking emo boys and these fucking alternative kids, and it's like I want to be them and I want to like kiss them, and it was like fucking it was fucking weird. Right? It was complicated. Uh, so there had to be a lot of, like, kind of self-regulation to keep myself away from, from that on multiple fronts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. How does that kind of... I don't know, what kind of... What were those regulations like? I just, like, really, like avoided talking to people <laughs> you know um and i do stuff and i get an invitation somewhere i'd be like i really want to do this up oh, not for me you know it's like i need to find the kind of first available out here um you know it was kind of like a being friendly but it's like i really cannot let myself get too close or be too friendly partially because like i also you know um like, didn't want to deal with, like, the social rejection of not knowing how to do it. Right. Because also, I was bullied a lot as a kid. A lot, a lot. Uh, in elementary school, especially. Because of the environment that I was in. You know? And, like, a lot of that bullying was kind of, like... It was about a lot of things. Right? Um, like, gender stuff, weight stuff. But part of how that kind of got translated to me was like, oh, like, I'm being bullied because I am just, like, not part of these certain kinds of communities. And if I try to interact with communities that I am not visibly a part of, then it's going to end badly for me. So kind of the response, I think, in part to a lot of that bullying was like, okay, well, the spaces I could safely interact with people in and be okay in, like, are probably spaces that have, like, other Jewish people and... You know, other people that, like, don't fit the appropriate mold of how I thought everyone should be. Um, that society was saying. So not my normative judgment, but it's like, all right, I don't accord to this way of being. Um, maybe other people that also don't accord, I can have some kind of, some kind of alliance with. And I think the thing about a lot of the kind of subcultural units in my high school is, like, they were so cool. They were so cool to me. 
it's like, oh my god, like, am I going to be punished for trying to hang out with the cool kids? Like, they have their own norms, I don't know them. I'm going to fuck up and do something wrong. It's going to be disastrous. So, better to kind of, like, not alienate people and keep to myself. Okay. Which is ludicrous on some level, right? Like... Yeah, but also, I, I get it. <laughs> um, I don't know, I feel like... Um, yeah, I definitely, I don't know, I feel like I definitely... There were There were moments where I sort of felt that way, or there were definitely, like, instances where I sort of held back from things that I would maybe have rather participated in because of, I guess, um, fears that feel... That feels similar to that, yeah. Um, I think the continuity between then and now is that, like, there's a lot of time I just don't really feel like a full person, right? And, you know, it's like, oh, I didn't have, like, you know, the proper gamut of socialization or, like, know how to do the right things, and therefore I don't get to do this, right? Um... And, like, what counts as someone with a kind of the right experiences and socialization or whatever, like, varies, depending on the context. But, you know, I think that was very much part of it. You know, it was even less like, oh, I'm scared, you know, which is part of it, too. But it's also like, a, oh, I don't get to do this because I'm not, I'm not a real person that gets to do these kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. How does so. this sort of how does this sort of change as you as you go to off to college? I think I care less <laughs> on some level. I think I care less on some level. Um, part of it is I get to college and like I had this perception of myself in high school as kind of a conservative person because I was like, oh, I I dress even though I didn't want to. I dress kind of conservatively, like you know, I like was like pretty serious athlete. I didn't really like drink or do drugs in high school. Like I was in a long monogamous relationship with someone who was from, in some respects, a very traditional family in other respects, not at all. Um, but I didn't realize the extent I was just kind of like a weird, a weird, uh, like queer kind of lefty person that wouldn't have fit in somewhere more conservative. So I ended up going to like a really conservative college. And it was like immediately a disaster. You know, I was like, oh, I, and I went there because it has a reputation of being like one of the happiest college campuses um, in the country. And I just found it really deeply alienating. And I was like, I don't fit in with these people. And, you know, the whole gendered way of being there was something I had no access to, uh, especially because of, like, sort of the intensity of, like, bro culture and, like, hookup culture on that campus. And those are things that I both kind of had no idea how to engage with her. I didn't feel comfortable around. So, you know, I, I, I think, like, I got to a point there where I just didn't really have a lot of connection with people and have a lot of friends. I didn't really fit in. I was trying, it was luckily not working in ways that were like much more painful. And I got to a point where I just like needed community 
and things were like so dire that I had to like overcome the immense discomfort I had trying to like relate and work across difference and be like, look, I need friends. I need community. How am I going to find that? And a big part of that in college was through doing capoeira. Um, I started training that, you know, um, because someone invited me to a class um, like really early on my freshman year. And I, that's how I met a bunch of people I became very close to. And they were mostly not college students and didn't live on campus and were part of broader communities. And that's where I really started meeting and spending a lot of time with people, you know, that were from a different set of backgrounds, with a different set of politics. It was through that. Can you um, explain to the audience what capoeira is? I feel like that's something that might not be. Yeah, it's like, it's a complicated thing to explain uh, on some level. Um, I think, like, so, like, the easiest definition of it would be, like, oh, it's this Brazilian martial art that, you know, is kind of mixed with a dance. I think that's sort of the most kind of at-hand accessible definition, you know. It's, it's complicated, you know, because it's not really just a martial art, right? It's this Afro-Brazilian cultural manifestation that has a bunch of elements and different dynamics inside of Brazil that ended up getting really, really big and being exploited internationally and looks very different kind of depending who you're talking to and where you are. Um, you know, the version of it that I trained and what I do now are very different. Uh, but that, that, that's kind of the broad strokes thing. It's kind of like a non, you know, the, the generic way of talking about this, which is slightly inaccurate, is like, it's this kind of non-contact dance martial art thing that oftentimes, you know, looks a little bit like breaking. You say leg breaking? <laughs> like, like breaking, like break dancing. Oh, like break dancing. Okay. Yeah, you said leg breaking. Oh no, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus! Uh, I've seen some bad injuries, but never intentionally. Well, even way. if they, I don't know, even if they aren't intentional, right? Isn't there's like a skateboarding trick called a boneless? Isn't that a thing? That's true. That's true. You, you can do th you can do things that look like they would break a limb, um, even if they don't actually. <laughs> Uh, um, <laughs> sorry, this is uh, tangential. Um, but okay, so that becomes the sort of uh, a way for you to kind of. I don't know what are, what are those people like. Like you say, that they're kind of they're they're different. How are they different? It's a weird group of people. I think, like in the United States, like there are maybe a few different groups that that do it. Um, it's like, once again, different in Brazil. Uh, in the U.S., uh, it kind of got tied to, like, a certain set of, like, pan-Africanist politics. So, you know, I had this moment when I was in college, and I was going to this, um, you know, uh, this, to, to take classes at this youth center in, in Inglewood that basically existed to, like, disrupt the, the school-to-prison pipeline and was run by former Black Panthers. Like, really cool space doing interesting work, right? Totally different world than I was inhabiting 
as, you know, someone from, like, North County Coastal, San, you know, San Diego. Um, so that's, like, one set of people. Uh, then, you know, I think another population, which is oftentimes very different than the population, is there's, like, this uh, kind of, like, white progressive multicultural crowd that probably picked it up during college since uh, capoeira is really tied to colleges in the United States. There's like a specific history there that's interesting, but maybe like tangential. Um, but you know, like that's a really big audience for capoeira and that just tends to be like a very particular kind of like white college educated, like probably kind of artsy person. But that's attached to like a wide variety of like different, different um, subcultural groups too, right? And then they're like the dance people that get into capoeira, you know, like that's a whole type of person that is like really focused on like uh, different kinds. That they're, they're they're dancers and they find they they find kind of the the interpersonal interaction and improvisation of capoeira to be really interesting. That's like another subset that like often overlaps with the first or the second. And they're people that like, like acrobatics and like tricking because a lot of capoeira involves acrobatics like you'd see in breakdancing or tricking. So that pulls in some people. And like that's, that's a different audience altogether um, that can also be very varied. So capoeira pulls from these like really wide like bases of people because of what a weird practice it is. It has all these components. It has the movement, it has the music, right? I think those are big draws for a lot of people. And then, you know, the way the capoeira ended up being exported internationally was as a, a kind of Brazilianness. And I think a lot of people are really attracted to this, like, specific whitewashed version of Brazilianness that exists in a lot of capoeira circles and communities in the United States. Um, which is part of why they're like really strange environments for a lot of reasons. Um, but you know, like that comes with like a certain kind of party culture and the way it's manifested. Right. And like, there are people that are just like, do a lot of capoeira cause they like the party culture. And that's kind of weird. Never was my bag, but like, that's also a thing. Okay. Interesting. Which of those? I, I don't know. Did you did you sort of like which one of those did you kind of fall in with? I mean, right. It sounds like your own kind of introduction to capoeira isn't really doesn't really fit with any of these kinds of archetypes. I think I was I was in I was in so I, I fit in like the college progressive you know whatever archetype. And most people I trained with in college were like this. They're like you know, college students that want to do a fun cultural activity and also need to get PE credit because my undergrad required PE credits to, <laughs> to graduate for God knows what reason, right? So um, that drew in a certain, a certain kind of audience. Um, those didn't end up being the people I got closest to, but um, that's kind of like the, the group that I came in with. And... I ended up sticking with, I think, people from a really wide variety of backgrounds um, in terms of, like, what brought them into capoeira because, like, 
someone's entrance point into capoeira, I don't think it says a ton necessarily about how I'm going to resonate with them as a person. Um, and I think people also move inside the practice because, you know, you come in for one thing and you end up leaving doing another. Um, but I ended up, I think, really sticking with the people that tried to take it seriously as a thing in its own, cont- in its own context for its own s- sake. Because I really loved it and like had like this really deep kind of curiosity about what it was and um, how it developed and like how it's situated and like what it is now. So like do the curious people is kind of who I end up sticking with. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. And. When does that sort of is is that kind of how you end up around more queer people or Yeah, that's part of how I end up around more queer people. Um I also just like actively tried to seek out queer people in in college. Um I really think so I think I could break my time in college down into like two chunks and part of it And, like, the big dividing line is the end of the relationship I went into college with, with my high school girlfriend, immediately followed by this trip to Brazil, right? So I ended up getting a bunch of grant money from the college to shoot a documentary about capoeira in Brazil. And, you know, the documentary I made was, like, terrible. Uh, But it, like, really just, like... bare base requirements. I didn't know what to talk about, didn't know what to do, didn't know much about shooting documentaries. It bit off way more than I could chew. But it meant I was able to go to Brazil for like three months-ish and just like train. I did not speak like a lick of Portuguese. It was, it was, it was, it was a weird time. And I'll, I'll get back to that in a second, right? But like that trip happened. And right before that trip happened, like a month or, and change before, like I had you know, like a, 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 a serious breakup with like my high school sweetheart. And we had been dating for like four years, like a little over four years. And I was like very convinced that we would get married. And I was in this interesting position where it's like her family, I was the first boyfriend, quote unquote, in like the history of her family. Um, it was a family where there had been like a lot of arranged marriages. And there had been a lot of, like, you know, uh, you know, communal matchmaking kind of things going on. So not, like, you know, unarranged marriage per se, but, like, you have a matchmaker set you up on a date, and it's someone you know in the community, right? Like, she came from, like, a pretty insular, in some ways, community of Persian Jews. And her parents weren't that way. Like, you know, her mom was this really, like, awesome, like super far on the left, really, like, kind of transgressive, like, potter, artist, you know, was my introduction to anti-Zionist politics because she was the first Jew that I met that was like, actually, Israel's a disaster, <laughs> by the way. Um, and, you know, she was just kind of the right age where, like, she was, like, young and optimistic on the eve of the revolution in Iran. And there's apparently a picture of her you know, like, out on the street when the revolution happened, you know, like, with, like, an M1 Garand <laughs> that she got somehow, right? <laughs> um, 
but you know, like super feminist empowered woman, you know, quote unquote, she viewed herself as, you know, super feminist empowered woman would maybe be like a self-description in some respects. Uh, and, you know, all of a sudden with the way the revolution went in Iran uh, was not a welcome environment. So she kind of had this like, I really interesting set of politics for me as someone that had never met anyone like this before that was like, she had this revolutionary nostalgia. She's like, this, you know, I took part in a revolution that could have been a beautiful thing. I'm aware of this thing that has so much potential, and it became a reactionary train wreck. Uh, but, like, some of her best friends were, like, lesbians from, like, the Pacific Northwest. And they'd, like, come down to visit all the time. And I fucking loved them. They were great. Right? It was my first time just, like, hanging out with, like, really cool, crunchy old dykes. And I loved that, you know? And that would have never happened without, like, my high school girlfriend's mom. And, you know, all the kind of gender expectations in that relationship in, like, private space were, like, really put on pause, right? I was really given a lot of opportunity and, like, space and support in expressing myself differently than I kind of ever had otherwise. Um, and, like, my high school girlfriend was also bisexual, um, like... She was, like, the first person I came out to. You know, like, we live in a space where, like, we really cared about, you know, queer things, even if that wasn't, like, the main body of our community or, like, a structuring thing. Although she had a number of queer friends. So, like, it was kind of through her that I first got in contact with other queer people, even though it was kind of, like, at a distance. I was like, oh, like, this is my girlfriend's family and family friends this is my girlfriend's friend circle i've got my own thing going on but i was like deeply appreciative of it and i think part of you know the the kind of awkwardness around bonding over queerness was like all right you know at that point i'm ostensibly a guy in a relationship with a woman right like how do i communicate and talk about these things in a way that's not that's not awkward like there was kind of this major kind of monogamy pressure and there was also this kind of like all right um, her mother was a certain way, very progressive, but like the rest of the family wasn't all that way. So there was this kind of mode toggling and we ended up spending a lot of time around her family. Part of what was weird about that relationship was that at some point people just like kind of started treating me like I was part of the family. Right. And like, we were just like a thing. It was like inevitable. We were probably going to get married at some point. Um, so breaking up, I just like kind of lost, lost those connections too, which was hard, but you know, um, that relationship was such a structuring thing in my life that, like, I really, and I leaned more on it when I got to college and I bounced off, bounced off um, the culture there. And I didn't really seek out, like, queer community and queer culture uh, that existed on sort of the campus and, our, and the surrounding area because, you know, we had a really kind of strict, hey, like, we're going to talk so often every day, da 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 and, like, you know, I didn't want to, like, you know, uh, lose time with this person that was really important to me. I was very much, like, a girlfriend guy huh? at that point in my life, unfortunately. I had, like, a hobby and a girlfriend, and that was my life for high school. And that was my life for a chunk of college. 
And then we broke up. And I was like, holy shit. Like, I need more queer people in my life. And, like, that's when I started, like, hooking up with guys and, you know, um, consciously trying to exist in queer spaces. Uh, so, like, that relationship, and that relationship gave me a lot of room for, like, where I, ended up, where I ended up in terms of, like, gender and sexual orientation. But also, like, it really kind of restrained where I was at towards the end. And, like, breaking up allowed that to happen. Uh, allowed, like, different things to happen. Uh, so, you know, I'm in this relationship that's, like, defining my entire life. And then the relationship ends. And I'm, like, fucking devastated. Because, like, I don't really have friends at that point, you know, that I'm, like, super close to. Um, I'm having a really hard time in school. Uh, I don't have a lot of community there. And, you know, this person I'm, like, really, like, orienting so much of my life around is, like, no longer a factor. And I, like, didn't know who the fuck I was. And it's, like, at that moment where I'm, like, I, like, pack my bags. And it's, like, all right, I gotta go to Brazil for three months. So that was, like, a really kind of weird cultural shock. And I think shifted a lot about how I thought about things and how I did things because where I was at in my life. That first trip there. So I think I kind of came back a different person in some respects. And then that person kind of had the opportunity to, like, do a bunch of new things. And be kind of a messy bitch. And, you know, I, I, I was, like, really hesitant about coming out because of how, like, homophobic the environment in my school was. We had multiple professors um, testify in favor of Prop 8 during the court case. Um, I had people, you know... I was really drunk at some point at a party dancing with a guy, and... Like, like one of my, like, uh, you know, one of like the orientation people that I had, like, that helped me during all this orientation stuff, right? Came up to me and is like, you shouldn't do that. People are going to think you're a fag. Like, you're just not a welcoming environment. So I kind of had no intention of coming out and dealing with all that. Um, but I ended up like getting really drunk one night and like having a bunch of people over, like, in my dorm room space. And, like, making out with a guy in front of everyone. And it's like, all right, cat's out of the bag. Like, <laughs> okay, and what was the sort of aftermath of that? You know, it was complicated. Um, because, you know, if, 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 I, if I have a toxic trait... I probably have several, but, you know, it's that, like, the romantic relationships I'm in tend to, like, really influence and inflect my life. And, like, I was, like, just starting to to date someone, like, very quickly after getting back. I, I, started, to, I started to kind of non-monogamously, like, date and hang out with um, the person that ended up being, like, another four and change your relationship with a girlfriend and my, my girlfriend in high school and my, my girlfriend, in, like my girlfriend in high school, my girlfriend in college. Um, and you know, before that, 
really kind of took off, um, she had mostly been dating women. And here I was, like, hanging out in queer spaces for the first time, like, hooking up with guys, and, like, kind of visibly being, being like, a gay man. And everyone's kind of response when we started dating each other was, like, stop lying to yourself, you don't need a beard. And I remember there was this point that I was at this party, and... You know, like, me and her had been kind of, like, publicly dating, though not monogamous, for a little while. And I'm, like, making out with this guy, and he grabs me, uh, you know, like, over my clothes. Like, like grabs my cock and balls. And, like, like he was, like, pulling me close, right? And he's like, he's like, he's like, come the fuck on. Like, you know you're gay. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're, cle- like, you're clearly gay. Like, why are you dating my friend? And, like, that was a fucking weird interaction, right? Yeah. Like, why, why, would you, why would you do that? So, you know, the friend group where I had started hooking up with a bunch of people that was holding these kind of weird, weird gay sex party things, right? Like, I ended up not stopping talking to them in particular and having the whole friend group kind of, like, blow up a little bit. They're like also my 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 college girlfriend's friend group because we were just like fuck you like why is it a problem if we're seeing each other? Yeah, but you know like the whole like dealing with gender and uh, sexuality was like a really fraught kind of public thing. And, like, had to do with, like, identity and friend groups and whatever. Like, it was taking place on, like, a very different stage. I remember I had this moment where, like... This is, like, fucked up. But, like, this guy in my dorm, who was, like, a freshman at this point, I was... I was a sophomore. Um, I, was a, I was a junior. I was a junior when this happened. Um... Like, because it was between my my sophomore and junior year. So I was a junior towards the end of my junior year. And, um, you know, this kind of, like, punk freshman, like, reaches the conclusion that, like, and this is, like, super, super fucked up and and transphobic. But, like, he reaches the conclusion that, like, oh, uh, I must be a trans guy. Because if my, if my, you know... If my college girlfriend had only been dating women before, then she was definitely a dyke. And the only way that, like, she'd be dating a dude was that if he was a trans guy. So there's, like, weird rumor, like, in the dorm I was living in that, like, I was trans mask. And I was, and I, like, I had to sit down with this person and be like, what, what is this rumor? Like, Why? This is a we like this is not this is like a like not true but like more importantly like where the fuck did you get this idea? Yeah. <laughs> and like why are you telling people this? Right? But like that was kind of the environment that that I was in. Uh So, you know, there was that component of it. And then I also just like, you know, I, I kind of got on weird Facebook at that time <laughs> and, like, met a bunch of, like, queer and trans people. Is that where we met? N- kind of. Kind okay. of. He posted a reading group ad and, like, a theory. 
Yeah. A, like like a theory group. And yeah. I then joined the reading group. That, that That's what I meant. I mean, I remember that we, like, met through the reading group. I was just sort of, like... Was that, like, through the weird Facebook thing? Okay. That was, like, a different corner of weird Facebook. Okay. A little bit. I ended up on, like, a different corner of it initially. Um, and there was some, like, weird kind of online, like, queer community at my colleges didn't really meet in person. We had these kind of, like, groups there that were, like, kind of, like... Like, they have them at a lot of schools now, I think. It was, like, you know, like, Facebook groups for, like, gossip and, like, good fashions and da-da-da-da-da, right? Right. Um, there were a lot, there was a lot of, like, discourse and, like, comments in those groups when I was, when I was in college. So I participated a lot in that. Um, yeah. And I once again ended up in a situation where it's like, hey, you know, uh, how I met this person and kind of their friends and their social world and how we interacted... Also, maybe opened up a lot of things for me in terms of gender and sexuality, but like also ended up being kind of a disaster. And and this this time in a much worse way because she eventually made a pivot to becoming a very conservative person in a lot of ways, and decided at some point that like you know um, she wanted to like uh, marry, uh, have kids, move back to Jordan, live a very particular kind of life that did not really accord with what she had wanted before. And what kind of, I think, were, like, sorts of gender variants that, like, were attractive to her before became, like, problems. And, you know, like, at some point, a long-running thing in our relationship that, like, became, like, pretty abusive uh, in a lot of angles, including physically, was like, oh, shit, like, like you're such a faggot, like, how am I supposed to be in a relationship with someone that's not a real man? Right? And, like, that became a problem. Despite the fact we met through a pretty queer circle of people, right, and that was kind of a large part of what we both were engaging with. Um, you know, I helped her with some research she did for her thesis that was on, like, gay Ottoman love poetry. <laughs> right? Um... And I very much, like, dove into that world as someone that was, like, very into lyric poetry and sexuality and lyric poetry. I wrote my MA thesis on that. We had a lot of comment, and we kind of talked and shared a lot of things around that, right? So it was, like, a shared world that just also became, like, kind of utterly burdened and toxic when I started hanging out with more trans people after I moved to Chicago and started hanging out in more queer spaces. And it was like, oh, shit, like, this was a problem in how we related to each other to the point where it was like major uh, fuel for uh, some pretty abusive interactions. Okay. Well, damn. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really fucked up. <laughs> it was really fucked up. It was really fucked up. Yeah, oh my goodness. Um, God, yeah, right, and this is, like, starting to get weird, because I feel like this is, like, coming up against, like I said, like, when we when we met each other, and so I feel like I know, well, I don't know, I, I don't know if I know the entirety of the story, right, in there, because I feel like, right, when we met, I don't think you'd come out as trans yet, at least I don't think, had you? We met at a weird point. And I, like, I had come out as trans in some capacity 
like a lot earlier because me and you met years after this happened. Okay. Maybe um, the timeline screwed up. <laughs> yeah. So like this, this, so like me and her broke up around 2015. Okay. So yeah. And we met like, like two, like two ish, three years later. Okay. Yeah. I think at the very least. And, you know, um, And I had kind of a whole different arc. And this is another one of those like things that opened space for me and were also really constraining. I got I got to my MA program and because I came to Chicago to do to, to, to do an MA. And I immediately had problems in my cohort. Um, and I got outed in a really shitty way as queer. Um, basically there was someone in my cohort who didn't like me very much because she was this Orthodox Jew, an ardent Zionist, and and was like the only way someone can be religious and a Jew is to be an anti is to be ardently Zionist. And here I was, you know, someone who Judaism is very important to me, even if I wasn't really practicing, um, and was an anti-Zionist. And we butt heads from the very beginning. And I try to be respectful and take space, but she was very bothered by the fact I existed. Um, well, at some point, you know, the relationship I had with my, with my college girlfriend opened up again, which was nice and a relief. And I was, like, hooking up with some, with some guy. Uh, and we were, like, literally, like, at a Walgreens buying condoms. And I ran into this person, and she, she you know, walked up to me. And she's like, oh, how's your girlfriend in New York doing? And, like, tries to be, like, weirdly catching me in the act and guilting me. But, like, everyone knows about what's happening. Like, this guy knows what's happening. Like, we're having a good time. We're chilling out. So, like, you know, it's fine. I come back in on, you know, like, the next week on Monday. And, like, I can tell people are, like, kind of looking at me sort of funny. And, you know, after a little bit goes by, you know, a friend kind of comes up to me and is like, hey... You know, it took a while to get through everyone, but do you know what people are saying about you? <laughs> and the whole narrative was that, like, you know, I was cheating on my girlfriend, and I was, like, secretly gay and lying about it because I was ashamed. Some really weird shit. You yeah. know, because I didn't... Because I didn't, like... I, when we were introducing ourselves, I didn't really, like, talk about myself as, as a queer person, although it probably was, should have been obvious from what I was working on. You know, which was, like, gender and sexuality in, like, early modern lyric poetry. Like, that, that field is full of straight men, right? Like, not, not exactly. <laughs> not exactly. Um, but at that point, I was like, I, I don't want to, like, really engage with the people anymore. So I decided to, like, try and make some friends in the kink scene. Because I figured, hey, you know, like, my partner at the time... You know, that the college girlfriend, like, wanted to get more into, like, EDSM stuff. Part of her problem with me is that I, like, wasn't toppy enough. And I was like, I can turn myself into a top if I go to these kink classes. Like, a convincing top. And that will solve my relationship problems. <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> and the thing is, I did kind of turn into a top, just, like, not that way. Right? Um... So, so I started, like, hanging out with a bunch of kinksters and kinky people. And, like, 
you know, it was in that context that, like, I met, you know, my current partner of, like, seven years and a bunch of other partners and great supportive friends and other people that, like, really created a lot of space for me, like, gender-wise. And, like, fairly quickly after joining the kink scene, I was like, oh, I'm not cis. Um, I am, I am not a cis person. And I was like, okay, you know, I am a non-binary person. Like, this is very, very clear to me. Like, gender doesn't make sense to me. I want to express in ways that, like, are not open avenues for cis men, you know. Um, I am a non-binary person. And I think part of it, too, is that, like, the pansexual kink scene's a fucking mess. It's a disaster, and I hate it. Um, <laughs> there are good things about it, too. But, and Margot Weiss talks about this a lot um, in her book, which I'm blanking on the title. Um, but, like, the kink scene, the pansexual kink scene, is one of the places that has the most normative expectations around gender that I've been in in my life. Especially for men and masculinity. And, you know, I was, in this, I was in this abusive relationship with someone that was, like, on my shit for not being, you know, mask enough and not being toppy enough. And I'm in this space where these things are, like, hugely socially enforced in a lot of ways and have huge ties to, like, desirability. Not just, like, in terms of, like, play and sex, but, like, who's going to be friends with you? Like, what's your reputation? It, it's a big thing in the pansexual kink scene. I think things are a little bit better now than they were, but like it's still it's still a huge still a huge problem. Um, and I managed to find like a lot of the really cool, weird queer and trans people that happened to be in that space that didn't have a lot of other spaces to be in, or they just you know like kink was that important to them. Okay, but that but that put me in this position where it's like, all right, like how do I exist as a gendered person? And once again, this really binary schema, mm -hmm. right? Where you have like, you know, where it's very much like men and women and like maybe women light, you know? Yeah. Um, and role is also very tied to gender. Like it was not, kink was like really liberatory for me in some ways and like not in others. So, you know, as I was trying to navigate that, I became a kind of public figure a little bit in in the rope scene and rope world because I ended up there for some like really specific reasons that hopefully we'll get to talk about shortly. But like, you know, I had this realization where it's like, oh shit, like the more I like am femme in front of people, the less people want to come to my classes. Especially like the more I'm femme in certain ways. I got, like, very specific feedback about how I could exist in a gendered way. So I was this moment where it's like, oh, shit. Like, um, I'm, I'm, like, femme. How do I tamp back on that enough to exist in the way that I want to in these spaces publicly? How do I respect that? So, you know, I, I had this, you know, like, moment years and years and years ago, maybe five, six years ago, you know, where I'm just, just like, oh, shit. Um, I'm not cis. I'm trans. Uh... I want to be more femme and how I go about doing things. Uh, I feel really constrained because of the world I exist in. And I was, like, really scared to explore things. And at the same time, like, a lot of the trans women I met were not like me and, and like, how I wanted to be. There's kind of, there's a, a very specific kind of um, 
I think, more socially acceptable uh, binary femininity. And a lot of them had kind of, like, really fucked up politics. So, you know, I was like, I want that, but I can't. And I shouldn't. So I was, like, out as, you know, um, this kind of non-binary person for a long time. And it really took, like, me mostly leaving the kink scene, which is what happened around when we met, to be like, oh, shit, like... I am, like, trans, and I am, like, a trans woman in some capacity. Okay. Okay, that that, that tracks, because I remember, I feel like that was sort of... The fact that you were you were sort of on your way out from that sort of stuff was, like, happening at that point. Yeah, um, I think it started, it started happening pretty quickly, you know, because at some point I realized, oh my god, I'm much more comfortable in, like, gay leather spaces than my sexual kink spaces. So there's a way in which I feel like my first gender transition, in some sense, was, like, reinventing myself as a gay man. As, like, a leather man? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or someone at least really inflected by that. Okay. That's really interesting. It's still really Um, important to who I am, you know? And that's sort of, like, while you're thinking of yourself as non-binary, right? Yeah. Okay. But it's like, oh my god, here are all these people whose, like, ways of interacting really resonate with me. And, um... Who like the sex they have is super hot and like resonates with like what I'm into, and you know there are a whole bunch of things that I'm like you know really interested in. Okay. And you know at that point, at some point in that kind of, at some point well into that process, I started dating someone that was like also kind of I think in a process of like self invention as as. Uh, someone very inflected by, like, a 1970s uh, gay pornography leather moment, right? Right. So, you know, like, we really shared that. Mm-hmm. That's somebody you met, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, is this the one of your exes that I've met? This is, one of, this is the one of my exes that you've met. Yeah, uh, you know. So I was doing this interesting thing where I was like moving between these like gay leather spaces and these pansexual kink spaces, and you know, um, spending a fair amount of time with a partner that like was very much operating in this imaginary, and that was like really important to me, even if it wasn't a huge, you know, um, like if you look at like the breakdown of my hours of the day, right. That's not, you know, where I was spending most of my time, or I was so busy doing rope things, I didn't have a ton of time to spend. But, like, you know, I did get into this corner where it's, like, I had a few really close rope friends and, like, collaborators and partners that were, like, gay leather people, right? Um, Most of them aren't men anymore. That's really interesting. I, like, found, like, this group of, like, gay leather friends that are, like, now all, like, gay leather trans women. So, like, my version of, like, gay leather culture was weird, because my gay leather friends ended up not being men. Yeah. Let me ask you a quick, because this is something I've been thinking about just, like, over the past week, as I've been, like, right, you know, 
I don't, I try not to spend too much. I mean, I'm going to say this and then like everyone's going to be like, shut the fuck up. Um, I try to spend too, not too much time thinking about transphobic um, schemas or, or sort of ways of thinking about trans people's experiences. Um, but then inevitably I do. But it's, I, it's funny, right? I was sort of like doing this thing of just like kind of like taking stock of the people in my life who have been important and like realizing that like the sort of like weird idea of like gay man to straight trans woman or, or gay boy to straight trans woman um, as it may be, you know, sort of depending on the age or sort of like, you know, youth transition or what or whatnot. Um, just, like, has literally, like, no purchase on, like, my actual life. Like, I don't really know that many people that sort of fit that mold. Um, I guess the sort of, uh, the, 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 the kind of question I'm, I'm reaching for through that is, like, did those trans women, are they, like, dykes now, or are they, I mean, I don't know, I guess, like, still leathery and, and into that. And, oh, can, can oh, they're they're <laughs> they're hundred percent dykes. Yeah, <laughs> they 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 are dykes who still like fucking gay men. Okay, you know, like like you know, bisexual gay men, but like people that exist like in the gay man gender and the gay right. leather man gender in particular. You know, I've I've like gone searching for it every once in a while. That like famous drummer, um, I think it was like a letter to the editor or whatever. Do you know the thing that I'm talking about? Where no idea, no idea. Okay, that, that's in, there's apparently I've heard about it and I've I've never actually been able to find it. Um, you know, drummer, right? Obviously. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. There's apparently there was a like letter letter to the editor that was like sent to them at some point that was like oh thank you for you know creating this one wonderful resource you know prissy whatnot um and the editors of drummer were just like one shut the fuck up you idiot um but two like here's all the ways that like leather and like sort of like leather masculinity is actually like very sort of similar in sort of form to those sorts of things. Um, which I, I've, I haven't been able to actually find the letter, so I, or the, the sort of letter and its response. So I'm probably doing a bad job summarizing its contents, but... Um, I'd love to see that. <laughs> I yeah, would love to see right? that. Um, right? It's like, a, it sounds very interesting. It's It sounds, I don't know. I didn't, I was going to ask if, I don't know if you knew about that, if you had if that felt reflected in that sort of experience in some way or something. So I've made, I've made several friends here that I like love dearly that are like older gay leather men. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had multiple conversations with them like separately. Right. So this is the number this is like several people. And they were all like, look, if I were your age, I'd be trans. Oh, whoa. That's so interesting. And that's a really strange thing, right? Yeah. And there's a way I just, I feel a lot of community, I think, with a lot of, a lot of older leather guys. Because, you know, there's not this need, I think, the same way to be like, 
narrowly locked in your masculinity and proving it all the time. Yeah. Do they... Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh, and you know, there's 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 space to like enjoy the way the activities that like within leather, the way some of those things transgress gender, there's space to enjoy it. And there's also enough stability in the identity of being a leather guy that like enjoying those things is not a fundamental threat to your identity as a gay man. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. But I never know how to respond to that that conversation, right? Yeah, I was I was curious. Do they ever like disambiguate that? Do they ever like sort of explain it um, out some, or 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 is it just kind of like you know? It's usually in this context of like I I hate this moment, right? This is, this is respectful, like oh you're so brave thing. Yeah. Or like oh kids these days are so different. Like in both those conversations. Mm-hmm. And it's like in like oh I, I I think young people they are really cool. It's usually the vein there. Yeah. And it's party wants to be like look like you can transition. Yeah, that's still an option for you. <laughs> that's still an option. But I don't I don't know. I think there's also a sort of I mean I right have said that I I think that the the number of trans people in the world should be the maximum. But I also do think that there's like potentially non Let's say this very carefully, because I think that probably the majority of the sort of like things that this is are wrapped up with like a whole bunch of like transphobic ideas about transphobic and misogynistic ideas about like age and desirability and stuff like that. But I do think that there's sort of like I could see a like non I could see like talking to a person in that sort of like space and like coming away with like the feeling that like, okay, like their reasons for not transitioning are like not fucked up like there's like i understand like why this is not the sort of thing that they want to do at this point in time and maybe that's i mean maybe maybe the sort of conversation i'm imagining is is still hinging on the sort of fact of you know uh transphobia elsewhere in the world and um right that that sort of becomes a uh a uh thing that you have to consider right when you're considering like is a transition uh when someone does like the calculus of like is this transition worth it to me um and that's you know unfortunate and that's that's transphobia or whatever but like i guess i don't know not transphobia on that person's part per se um yeah and i respect that calculus a lot yeah i mean like you're a trans woman so you've had to do it at some point right like but I kind of only decided to, like, go full tilt after, like, my life blew up and I was not losing much anymore. <laughs> well, you know. So, yeah, there's a way in which it's like, oh, okay, well. I think part of it is, like, the first steps I was taking are what led to my life blowing up, right? These things aren't necessarily totally separable. But that sure made it a lot easier for me. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. Like, I... I think, like, living in the world is a complicated thing, and, like, community is important, and finding ways to survive is important, and, like, I'm not going to individually judge any person for, like, not transitioning because of, like, their circumstances, right? I might, like, feel, like, sad for that person. Yeah. 
But I'm not going to judge them on it. You know. At the same time, I want to say here that, like, leather men who aren't men is, like, one of my favorite fucked up genders. You need to get me in touch with some of them. I mean, I guess you're kind of one, maybe. I don't know. Would you consider yourself one? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Like... Like, you know, the way like, I'm a gay man that's not a man. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, like, not just gay. <laughs> so, like, 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 where does that identity cohere? I don't really know. Like, where is it in here either? Like, I have no idea. But, like, that's still really important to me as, as, as part of who I am and how I move through the world. You know? Um... But, like, I met you through, like, an Oakingham reading group, right? Like... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like, okay, maybe, maybe that's obvious in some capacity. Uh, I think there are a lot of trans women running around that feel that kind of affinity. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, these, these kind of older leather, leather people, like, you know, could be part of that, but they can have their own thing, you know, existing in their own way. <laughs> as a weird corner of their own community. Like, you know, like, I think that's also super cool. Um, and speaks to, like, some of the gender weirdness inherent in leather. Yeah. It just does not exist in kink. They're, like, not the same thing a lot of the time. They're different subcultures with different mores and different gender stuff. Yeah. And I was involved in, like, a third you know, sexual subculture that really defined a lot for me. And that was, like, rope people and, like, Japanese rope bondage. Yeah. Which yeah. was, like, huge for me. Yeah, you wrote a book about, like, Derrida. <laughs> so I didn't write that book. My, my know, good friend... Sorry, my, yeah. my good, my good were, friend George, George Barkus wrote this book. You were uh, writing a was, book that was based on that and, like, Ockingham and... Yeah. Well, what was the book gonna be again? It was like a was it was it a glossary? God, I'm in the process of writing it. Um, <laughs> it's like it's like a horrible genre of trans woman book or like trans book in general, right? It's like it's like bitch reads Dillison Guattari and writes a book. Okay, that's right. <laughs> that's kind of what happened. So you know, it's it's basically a book on Japanese rope bondage that is approaching it from a perspective of, like, a broadly Dilizogatarian, like, frame and set of politics, and is sort of trying to imagine a new poetics for Japanese rope bondage. And, you know, the question that it asks is kind of a historical question, and the project is like, a, it's a speculative poetics. And basically kind of what I'm trying to imagine a little bit of is, is like, okay, like the way that Japanese rope bondage ended up being received in the United States was in this general kind of really particular primitivist frame in the kink scene, mm -hmm. right? That really sort of values things around sort of like you know, human nature and art-based desires and acting authentically, right? Like, this is actually, like, this isn't Ben Miller's work, right? This is actually, like, a long-running thread 
in a lot of gay culture is gay primitivism. Right. Especially in the leather scene, right? Um, and some of this gets translated into the general pansexual kink scene, not because they're leather people, but there's a lot of overlap there between sort of what they're doing in the Bay Area and people who are into, like, somatics, right? And that stuff that's going on and, like, you know, um, sex-positive advocates. There's a lot of circulation between those communities and a lot of shared values. So you can do a genealogy of, like, this line of thought, which is part of what I want to do a little bit of in, in my book, and sort of trace kind of this really particular kind of primitivist orientalist frame to a bunch of different places, right? Like, Harry Hay is an example of this, right? Um, the person that termed... I'm blanking on his name right now. It's kind of like my arch nemesis, and I'm blanking on his name. Um, the person that, ter- that, that coined the term somatics is another kind of one of these people. It's kind of a shared set of, like, cultural references. Um, but in any case, like, Japanese rope bondage kind of got imported to the United States and kind of framed in these terms. Which I think has been, you know, like, a political disaster because I think those are bad terms. And it's been, like, kind of sad for the, the sex people are having. Because I think those are actually, like, really bad terms to organize your sexual experience around. Right? And your way of being in the world. Like, I, I think that, you know, that's not tenable. So what this book project is doing is it's kind of looking at what was happening in these Showa-era avant-garde in Japan, who are reading Deleuze and Guattari uh, for some of that, and are engaged in a lot of similar stuff. Um, there's a huge interchange between France and Japan going on in that period. Um, and imagining these kind of other ways of being interacting from a different frame. You know, so practices like like Butoh, like some of these avant-garde theater things, like some of these like leftist politics, and being like, what if in a weird world, the set of conceptual stuff we used to like think about rope came more from that milieu and had this more Lizoguatarian politics? How does that rechange how we think sex and gender? And there's a little bit of historical work that I do saying there was this overlap. And I kind of look at that overlap and I'm like, what can we generatively create in this frame to imagine a better sexual politics? So that's, that's the book project. Um, it's in a few different parts, has a big set of keywords. It's a glossary, a few other things, some essays. But that's what I've been working on for a while. Okay. I was going to say, I think when we like read it, the reading group, it was the glossary or... A glossary yeah, the, or something? I'm trying to recall. At that point, I only had the keywords. Yeah. Yeah. And I realized I need some, like, framing material for this. Yeah. About what this project is. Um, because in that, you know, this book project, which who knows if I'll ever finish it, right? Whatever. Um, it started as, like, a pedagogical guide for rope classes I was teaching for the instructors in my organization. Yeah, I feel like I remember that. And then it became this really weird, theory-filled, strange, you know, kind of auto-theory-y text. But it started off as, like, a really a really strict, like, hey, I don't want to frame my practice in pansexual kink scene terms anymore. Right. So what are the terms I'm going to use to make a practice that's more compatible with how I see myself and how I want to 
be in the world. You know. Well, yeah. Do you have any terms you can share with us? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, God. Part of me is like, part of me is like, I, I, I could just pull up, you know, the list, the list of terms that I have. Um, there are a bunch of them. Uh, That's you know, I. <laughs> I mean, well, now I feel bad for asking you and then being like, no, we don't have time. Yeah, well, you know, so I'll I'll talk about one thing. I'll talk about one thing here that I think is is useful and maybe the genesis of this entire project, which you know is talking about um, vulnerability. Which I don't even know if this is a term that's going to end up in the the end of you know in the book at the end of things. But one of the genesis, one of the things that was the genesis for this project is I wrote a little a little essay I posted on FetLife and Twitter and other places called Techniques of Vulnerability. And one of the things that I talk about is that, like, okay, like, a lot of, you know, we don't think about it this way a lot of the time. Like, there's kind of, in a lot of rope culture, this, like, separation between, like, hard and soft skills, right? And there's a really weird kind of gendered educational dynamic, you know, where it's like, all right, like, you know. And this has changed since I got involved in scene initially, but it's not totally gone. Right, they're like the important thing, the important skills for you to learn are the hard technical skills. How do you tie something that has good tensions? Like, what is the pattern? Like, if you are someone that likes to be in ropes, or like more, more colloquially, like is a rope bottom. That's a term I don't use anymore. Like, I don't use top and bottom when I'm talking about rope. Um, so that that makes talking kind of complicated sometimes. But if you're someone that's like colloquially like a rope bottom, like you know, a lot of the skills that are valued are like, okay, like, how do you acrobatically, you know, physically endure and move through the sequence, right? So the first iteration of rope bottoming education that happened uh, that became a big thing was, like, Pilates for rope. It was a very strange, it was a very strange thing. That shifted a little bit. Um, but, you know, what I kind of wanted to talk about is, like, look, like, vulnerability in some sense like is technical and they're like they're they're cultural technologies and they're you know around dealing with vulnerability um that at the end of the day like the self is porous everything i do in terms of like my religious practice like in candomblé like my interest in rope and like gender and sexuality and like Dilusin Guattari is kind of about one thing. And that's about sort of like the porosity of the body and how, and like of the self and how there's no real distinction between inside and outside. That, you know, when you get to the most interior and intimate thing, what you arrive at is not, you know, the thing that's utterly you, but actually like the outside, like some kind of radical alterity, some kind of radical opacity. Um, you know, which is like a very common kind of like theoretical turn for anyone in the traditions that I, that I engage with. Um, but it means you have to talk about things really differently. So, you know, what vulnerability is in that sense is, you know, how is this really political thing, which is like, how do you choose what to let in and what to leave out? It's this, it's this very kind of like basic Spinozist 
politics that like Hart talks about of like, you know, how do you curate your relation? Mm-hmm. That's kind of pulling back to like the biggest zoomed out perspective. But, you know, like on a very practical level, it's like you're tying. Like, how do you make yourself receptive to moving with somebody if you're bottoming? Mm-hmm. How do you position your body in a way that someone can move you, even if they're smaller? How do you position your body in a way that, like, and you're kind of, not just your body, but also, like, how you are thinking, like, your whole kind of, like, habitus. Like, how do you inhabit a space where you have space to feel something? Where you're not shutting down um, the mo- you know the movement that's happening or something that might be surprising. So this kind of first piece that I wrote was about um, basically watching the person that Barkus was teaching a lot with at the time, Addy, um, and I was like, look, this person is a fucking brilliant rope bottom. And everyone at that time was so into, like, booking Barkus for these classes and, like, oh, my God, Barkus invented this whole style of tying, which, you know, in some sense they did. I do not want to, like, you know, diminish that. But I'm like, we aren't talking about Addy enough. Um, And, you know, basically, Barkus has a style called Rambu, which is just kind of, like, stormy, aggressive tying. Well, there's like a lot of movement, a lot of change in tempo and intensity. And that's really flashy for the person that's like applying the ropes, that's like topping the scene, so to speak. But the part that really amazed me is like, how do you bottom for something that's that dynamic? How do you kind of do that in a way where you're not running into like physical problems? right? Where there's room for something that's like emotionally emergent. It kind of takes two to tango, right? In that, in that regard. Um, and I noticed these little things, you know? So like, you know, one important aspect for vulnerability and tying for me is this really like physical thing. It's like, don't, if you're bottoming in a rope, don't stand with your legs too wide and your feet too far apart. Actually, like a really good thing to do is to narrow your stance, Right? And it's like a good idea to get on the balls of your feet. So you can take a little more impact, but also so you're ready to step, right? And oh, as a side, there's a really psychologically interesting and fun phenomena when you're sitting there and you're waiting for something to happen and you're kind of off balance. That's like starting an emotional conversation and kind of play and a game, right? And that kind of creates some of this vulnerability. And, you know... I thought through my own experience starting to bottom for rope more and in general where I was like, Oh, like at some point I became like less ashamed of like being a total, a total bottom when I bottom uh, for sex and kick, not just for tying and being like, Oh, okay. Well, I'm like kind of proud of this. There's, there's something to this, right? There's like an aesthetic dimension to this that is really enjoyable. And there's a certain femininity that gets transmitted in Japanese rope, which, you know, is not for everyone and should not be the only thing people are teaching. But in kind of the school that I learned, there's this whole set of dynamics around, like, there's a game people play a lot with kind of, like, uh, hiding and revealing and, like, shame and, like, coyness, right? 
So there's a whole kind of pedagogy you learn going through classes and patterns and tying, right? That, you know, isn't, that is maybe kind of indirect, but it teaches maybe a really particular set of like, you know, erotic coordinates for like how to play a certain sort of like shame play embarrassment thing, which I have a lot of fun with. So, you know, it's like, I kind of like learned a certain kind of like very feminine coded coyness that like did not extend initially into how I was in general space, but like it definitely affects my embodiment and became something I very intentionally technically put on. So, you know, for me, my classes all of a sudden became about not, like, how do you teach someone, like, this rope pattern? Because, like, whatever, right? It's, like, how do you teach someone to, like, feel more how they want to feel? How to recognize bodily configurations and relational configurations they enjoy and not have vocabulary around that to communicate what they want? And how to kind of experiment and map their own ways of relating to move towards what they want in their lives, right? Or like what's good for them. So like there's a way in which like the other, the, the nerdy summary of this book project and my work in Rope is kind of like, you know, right now we have a model of sex education that is focused nearly entirely on consent. Um, especially in like kink, leather, alternative lifestyle spaces. And consent is a really important technology it is a vital tool. It is probably the thing that should be guiding how people are having like sexual and play interactions. It is really fundamental, but like focusing on consent kind of is not what I want to do. I don't want to build an education or like a practice where like that's the horizon. Like my horizon is this very kind of Guattarian automodelization where you like map out in some sense how you relate and that map is totally personal to you and it becomes a way of like actually intervening in the relations that you have it's a diagram that affects what's being diagrammed they're taking place on the same level they give people more agency to engage in you know this maybe like broadly described kind of spinoza's politics like curating their relation and choosing to interact differently because the good things in my life has, have come from moments where, like, I have a new way of relation. And this is, like, especially true of gender. I experience something new that's, like, unexpected. And I'm like, oh, my God, I need that in my life. This resonates with me. This is joyous. And, like, choosing to follow that. Hell, yeah. That's all extremely cool. <laughs> We've gone on for a really long time now, and I feel like there's still, like, right, just knowing you, I know that there's still so much more that I'd love to ask you about. Um, I do want to ask you about just, like, one more thing before we wrap up. Um, yeah. Because it was something that you mentioned in the pre-production, and I feel like it's, like, lurking around all this sort of conversations around, um, I mean, like, the the sort of bodily practices and their relationship to political, ethical, social decisions, and so on, um, right? Which is something you mentioned uh, in the pre-production. I guess I've got this bullet point for disability and coordination, and you, you were talking about, and I've seen you talk about, um, right? I've I've talked about this 
this with you before, right? Uh, this as a, like, locus, I suppose, um, we'll say, of, uh, of, of gender or sort of, like, uh, a, a, a kind of uh, a site of gender problematization. Um, what's, what's sort of going on there? Yeah, so, you know, um, if we take Paul Preciado seriously and think that, like, an important thing in sort of, like, existing as a gendered person in society is sort of, like, the production and reproduction and transmission and, like, ability to play with codes of gender, right? Then, like, how an individual relates to them in their own embodiment is, like, actually really important. I think one place where, kind of, I think Preciado's politics fall really flat is sort of thinking about, okay, what are the specifics of how these things circulate in terms of, like, race and ability? Um, so I think a, a lot of, like, you know, and this is, like, vulgar, like, self-analysis territory, maybe, but, like, a, a lot of where, you know, me, like, not feeling like a total person comes from is that, like, I have, like, pretty severe uh, dyspraxia. I have that, like, wonderful cluster of things, very common in Jewish people, actually, where, you know, I have, like, very poor visual processing. I, like, can't remember faces. Um, I have some executive function issues. And, um, you know, I have pretty severe dyspraxia to the point where it's, like, I couldn't tie my shoelaces, really, until, like, fifth or sixth grade, Right? Like, that was very difficult for me. It took me years and years and years of physical therapy to, like, be able to, like, do buttons and, like, other fine motor skill tasks. So, you know, the question for me very much becomes, like, if I want to choose how I embody space, that becomes very intentional. And, you know, I think there are kinds of embodiment, especially in terms of, like, a certain refinement of movement and just, like, how you're holding yourself, right, that are very associated with femininity. So I spent a lot of my life being like, oh, I can't be a girl, I'm too clumsy for that. Right? That's, like, the most, like, direct manifestation of it. But, you know, it comes in a bunch of other ways. Um, you know, and it's like, I think it's important to think about you know, uh, a lot of kind of these, like, self-management things, makeup's one of them, right, as, like, being tied to coordination and being tied to, like, this embodied cultural transmission that's often terrible and is often violent and, like, often fraught uh, for, for cis women, right, that, you know, uh, becomes more complicated when it's like, all right, well, like, how, on a very practical level, it's like, if I want to look and interact and be read a certain way, you know, um, what are the coordinative barriers there? Yeah, what kind of work do you, what kind of work is, yeah, we're not, you're, you're not starting from the same place as the sort of imagined, you know, sort of like normal person or whatever, right? I mean, no one is. But um, these yeah. things are all these things are all really situated in like a complicated way, and yeah. you know. Um, so I think that's that's a huge 
that's a huge piece of it. And I think having spaces where you can learn, this is part of why rope is so important to me, having spaces where you can learn and explore and deal with different kinds of embodiment that are like safe spaces to learn and, you know, where you can deal with stuff with gender is really fucking important. And it's very important that that doesn't happen necessarily just in private space. Um, because I feel like, you know, part of what I've been talking about over the long arc of this in ways that are probably like too long and evolved to be particularly interesting sometimes is that like my experience of gender in some space, in some senses, rather, my experience of gender in some senses has been really shaped by what's been afforded to me by private interactions with people yeah. that were like largely romantic partners. And like, that's really dangerous and fraught actually. Yeah. That like makes kind of, you know, brings in all kinds of crazy, weird, bad power dynamics that like no one wants probably. And you know, that also makes kind of, everything really tenuous right and it means that like there are certain like blockages and issues that come up that don't really otherwise but i didn't really have other spaces where i felt like i had the capacity to like express myself or like fail definitely not in the public spaces that i was in so part of what i'm dedicated to now is like how do we create a robust public culture around the production of gender and sexuality a, ro a robust public sexual culture in some respects where there's room for that work and that interaction and that transmission to happen outside of the private. Because the fact that like gendered reproduction happens inside the family and that it's like privatized, like the reproduction of gender um, is like an utter disaster, right? Um, the fact that sexuality is mostly a private thing, in my opinion, is an utter disaster. So it's like, you know, how do you get to a better world with gender? You start to have a, a public place where these things can be played with and discussed. And some of that has to be explicitly pedagogical. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, we'll have to get into that some more uh, when we record a follow-up. Um, I don't know when that'll be. <laughs> I, you know, I think, I think the last piece here is, you know, and this is something I could, I could talk about much more at length, but to bring in this kind of last kind of like weird, you know, religious component to it, like alongside this transition, this kind of stage of my gender transition, I started practicing uh, a, a religious practice called Candomblé. There's a lot to get into there and how it's like changed my thought. And I'm not going to do that deep dive now. But what I will say is that one major feature of Candomblé is kind of all of it takes place at this location called the Teheru, which is like kind of the religious space where all this ritual takes place. And a ton of stuff has to get done for the ritual to take place, right? There's got to be like a lot of like cooking and cleaning, right? And part of what the religious practice involves, it involves kind of embodying these entities, right? Um, whether, you know, they're like ancestors or they're orishas or something else, right? You know, there's this, you're embodying gendered entities. And part of what you learn to do to embody that gendered entity is doing the dance. 
and dressing in the way appropriate for someone embodying an entity of that gender, right? And part of what you learn in that space is like, how do I take part in this community and do the necessary things? Maybe that's like, how do I clean a chicken to prepare it to be cooked? Maybe it's like, how do I do this like particular, you know, um, this particular little ritual thing? It's like, how do I clean this space? And it's one of the first places I've been in that I like had the chance to like, you know, come and being like, I don't know anything. I had a home life because of the gender dynamics in my household where like, my, it was my job to study. I didn't learn how to cook. I didn't learn how to clean. You know, this is all stuff I've had to figure out. That's a class position thing too. But, you know, like I've got, I had to figure all that out for myself and I don't know if I'm doing it right. And I have a lot of shame around that. Um, I don't know the particular dance, dances and movements I have to do in this situation. I don't know the little bits of ritual. And there's a place where like everyone learns and teaches collectively. And that was like such an important thing to me. And, you know, I really think that a lot of how people kind of can build their own interiority and their own lives and their own gender and their own experience is to find places for transmission of kind of existing cultural knowledge and codes and practices and taking advantage of that and seeing how it hits them and finding ways to take that material and build something for themselves. Um, and that's kind of what I'm looking to do in a lot of respects. And I think that's a lot of what I think trans politics in some sense has to look like on some level. It's like, how do we build a public social world for transmission of trans culture and things outside of, as I said, private relationships? Because that's largely been structuring for me in ways that I think have been very harmful and I'm continuously trying to move away from. Hell yeah. Well, that's a, a good sort of place to... I'll, I'll drop that in at the beginning of whenever we record uh, part two of this episode. Because, um, yeah, I don't know. Those all sound like uh, like really rich veins for, um, for, for the kinds of conversations that this podcast is about and for sort of, yeah, thinking about um thinking about that sort of stuff yeah 100 percent. i know part of me feels kind of weird about getting into like my own personal history like is that interesting to anyone i don't know i think it gets I, don't... I don't know i mean that's the idea of the podcast is the personal interesting but I'm, but i'm but i'm bored of it because it's my life but i don't think i would have arrived there without that previous discussion of just like yeah. The fact that, like, my gender has been shaped by a bunch of weird romantic relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um... Yeah, what a what a fucking awesome story. Um, I mean, I don't know, <laughs> what a life. Um, and and so many more. But yeah, 
I guess I'm sure I'll talk to you again very soon. Um, and we'll record a part two of this episode um, at some point, maybe soon. Maybe we'll maybe we'll, we'll let it stew for a little bit. I guess we'll have to think about that. But um, yeah, thank you to the audience for listening, um, for bearing with us, for um, supporting us on Patreon. If you are one of those blessed people that do, um, I think we are almost at the the point at which I said that I would record, start recording Euphoria, um, <laughs> Euphoria episodes. Um, so. You know, uh, let's get there, and we can uh, we can get talking about that. Um, and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Thank uh, you, and thank you to the audience. This was this was great. Oh, do you have anything you want to plug? I feel like you've always got interesting things going on, but I don't know if there's anything oh, that's God. like public facing at this moment. <laughs> so I want to plug anything. Um, so I have a, uh, how much do I want to like unite my public and private personas or like my Kingston and non Kingston personas is like an interesting question. Like, let's, let's just do it. Um, so I have a book club thing that I do that's going to be coming back in the fall that there's some good recordings of that have interesting conversations It's called deviations. It is hosted by Karada House in Germany. Um, so if you're looking for like things that like politically historically situate Japanese rope and like discussions around like you know important texts that I think relate to that sort of thing about my approach, that's probably the best place to look. Um, which their website is KaradaHouse.de, I think. Um, best thing to look at. I'll put that in the in the episode notes. Yeah, and I think that's that's probably the main thing. Probably the main thing. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you.